the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KEOW presents... New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton, drawing from his 28-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you have a money question for the show, don't be shy. Just shoot me an email. It's chad at chadburton.com. That's Chad at ChadBurton.com. Well, let's go over the market numbers. We're four days into the second quarter. Crazy. The year's going very, very quickly. And there's some that think stock market's doing horrible because we've had a, a lot of odd news. And there's even some that think that there's still a large rebound that were, will occur because last year was a rough year. We are only... Like I said, four days into the second quarter. It's April 5th as I'm recording the show for those podcast listeners out there. So it's, it's, the market hasn't opened yet today. So these numbers are as of April 4th. We've had some, some big gains so far this year. If we look at the QQQ, which is very tech heavy, it's up 20%. If we look at the S&P 500, it's up 7.27%. Now, let, let's again, let's break those down a little bit because when you talk about these indexes, a lot of people hear this on the news. They hear the Dow, the S&P 500, the, the NASDAQ. Well, there's certain holdings that appear in all of those. If we look at the S&P 500, remember, it is a market cap-weighted index of the largest 500 companies in America. What that means is that there is it's not an even amount in 500 companies. You have in the S&P 500, 7%, a little over 7% is in Apple, a little over 6% in Microsoft, Close to 3% in Amazon. you got almost 2% in NVIDIA. You've got Google's in there, Berkshire, Tesla, 1.5%. You, you get all the way down to ExxonMobil at 1.38% before you see something besides Berkshire that's not tech. And then you got Meta, Facebook at one37 So it's a market cap-weighted index to tech. You know, Kind of different than it was, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And there's several more oil companies in the top 10 holdings, for example. The S&P 500 is up 7.27% for the year so far. But if we take out just the top 10 companies or the tech, it would be pretty flat. And you can see that. I always mention this ETF. It's RSP. It's Invesco's Equal Weighted S&P 500 ETF. And what that means is it's truly equally weighted. So if you had $500 you'd have a, you, you, and you bought RSP, you'd have essentially a dollar into each of the largest 500 companies in America. So truly, you know, more diversified, less tech, more other types of assets. It's up 1.95% for the year. Now, 
despite all the news that we have, that's a quarter's worth of a return. So we'd be close to 4% for the year. If we kind of keep on this trajectory, not a bad return, right? If we continue that on in a year where we've had the fed raising rates, we've had smaller banks that became too aggressive failing. Now it showed that our banking system was working mostly good in terms of how it was handled. However, regulators failed there. So that's the whole other show. Now, you know, last year, if we look at the S&P 500 is down about 18%. The RSP, when you look at the entire group of the S&P 500, was down only 12.2%, all right? Now, if we look at the QQQ, that's the NASDAQ. So you can you can buy the NASDAQ where you, by buying QQQ. That's an ETF that tracks the NASDAQ index. NASDAQ index is also market cap weighted. In this one, you're even more tech because it's over 12.5% Microsoft, over 12% Apple, 6% Amazon, 5% NVIDIA. Between the two Googles, G-O-O-G-L and G-O-O-G, um, it's over 7%. And you got 3.6% in Meta. You got 3.6% in Tesla, 2% in Broadcom. So it's, it's, it's tech heavy. And the QQQ is up 20% for the year. Right. However, it was down 32.58% last year. So if you look from January of 2022 to today, it's still down almost 20% because tech got out of hand with the COVID rebound. Right. It just, it just rallied too much. So it makes sense that you've got this 20% rebound in tech. However, it was down 32.58%. And the way the math works, if something drops by 50%, you got to get 100% rate of return the next year to break even. So we're not even broken even yet on tech. And it kind of makes sense. Like technology stocks are interest rate sensitive. So they're going to move. If interest rates continue to come down like they've had in the last week or so, tech stocks become more attractive because the way that they're valued is discounted cash flow. That discount has to do with interest rates. Interest rates go up, the value goes down. Interest rates go down, the value goes up. So, you know, the, the, it makes sense. I mean, first of all, it shows you when, when things correct hard, that's usually a buying opportunity. Um, and it also makes sense because typically, you know, a recession tends to call for a 20% decline in stocks often. And right now it's kind of a rolling recession issue. It's not this, glo- this you know, global crisis like 2008. It's not even close to that. But it's more like the early 90s. Um, where you had kind of a, a rolling recession hitting different industries, and right now it's really hitting tech. Um, and so when we, we look back to January of last year, like I said, tech essentially is down around 20%. And so you get these declines before you eventually return back to the mean. When you look at the mean, it's like all of the, you know, the S&P 500 over the last 50 years has averaged a little over 11%. 74% of the time the market's positive. The rest of the time, it's negative. That's, you know, continue what you expect over your entire lifetime. Um, so so where are some other areas of the market? Um, again, we've got, you know, QQQ, which is tech, up 20%. If we look at Vanguard Growth ETF, it's up 16.8. International stocks, we've been talking about this for a long time. Big outperformer this year, up 9.84%. So ahead of the S&P 500, which is up 7.27% for the year so far. Bonds, if you look at AGG, iShares Core U.S. Aggregate Bond Index ETF, up 4% for the year is the total return there. 
So an increase in bond values because uh, you've got the the rate of return. The, the the bonds can go up in value if rates drop, um, and you get the interest payments on top of it. iShares Russell 2000 ETF IWM. So the Russell 2000 small and mid cap stocks flat for the year. Emerging markets up four percent for the year. So. Uh, you've got international stocks, a lot of positive talk about international stocks because you've got the dollar dropping. Now, what does that mean? It means, okay, the dollar was you know, rallying for several years, and now it's, it's turning course. So if the dollar goes way up, and then you can take the, those dollars, and because they've gone up, you can buy even more shares of something overseas. And overseas, the fundamentals are much more attractive in terms of P-E ratios, However, we obviously have Ukraine. But the dollar dropping, um, Europe already going through the pain, for example, China reopening better than expected. You have a lot more money moving overseas into international stocks. Now, we're still not to our normal weight on international stocks because of Ukraine, obviously. If it wasn't for Ukraine, we'd probably be placing even more money overseas at this point. And so typically, you know, even a 60-40 portfolio, that's kind of a balanced growth investor, a typical portfolio in retirement is two to three years worth of portfolio draws and safe money. And then, you know, a 60-40 portfolio, 60% growth, 40% defensive, that usually means 60% stocks, 40% bonds, cash, and other assets. Typically, about 13% of that portfolio or more is, is overseas. So keep that in mind when you're looking at your overall pie chart. And look, a 60-40 portfolio for accounts over $2 million is really becoming more like a 55% stock, 35% bond, and 10% alternatives to, to really get a properly diversified portfolio these days. Commodities, direct lending, private real estate, private equity, especially since fewer companies are going public, should be added to portfolios over that amount, in my opinion. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Got a couple of email questions to go over. You can shoot me an email, chat at chadburton.com. You're listening to New Focus on Wealth on AM 1220 KDLW. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you'd help with your financial planning, investment management, advice on everything that a certified financial planner practitioner does, taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, investing, we do it all at EP Wealth. You can check out chadburton.com. Couple more comments on the market as we jump into earnings season here for the first quarter of 2023 already. Wow, going fast. According to FactSet, their earnings insight page, which I love to keep an eye on during uh, weekly updates from them during earnings, uh, the estimated earnings decline for the S&P 500 is negative 6.6%. If that is the actual decline for the quarter, it would mark the largest earnings decline reported by the index since Q2 2020. That's, you know, right in the heart of COVID when it was down 31.8%. Um, so when we look at valuations, the forward 12-month PE ratio, that's the price-to-earnings ratio, the S&P 500 is 17.8. That's below the five-year average, which is 18.5, but above the 10-year average, which is 17.3. So fairly to fully valued is kind of the, the idea there, but keeping an eye on how companies report and whether that negative 6.6% earnings decline from this period last year 
comes into play and what companies say about the the dollar and interest rates and banking and uh you know JP Morgan uh Jamie Dimon, you know, talked about how this this banking issue is is going to have effects on the economy for a while. Banks are tighter and tighter on lending now. Let's get back to some emails. I got a question from Jay. Very simple question. Is it always better to wait until age 70 to take Social Security? We talk about this quite often because most people, when they look at their Social Security statements, and, and a lot of times you just have to log into SSA.gov to actually get these now. Um, you, you'll find that if, if you're assuming you're going to live into your mid-80s and you compare taking your Social Security at your full retirement age, because if you're still working, you never want to take it prior to your full retirement age unless you're having an income crisis. But if you, if you look at your full retirement age, which for most people is 67, versus waiting till age 70, and you do a break-even analysis, and you find that if you live into your mid-80s, it's almost like getting about an 8% rate of return on your money with Social Security if you wait. So you have to wait three years to take your payments, but at age 70, that's when it stops increasing in value. So you, you never want to delay it past 70. But if you wait till 70, it's like you know having an 8% rate of return. So you got to wait three years to get your money, your monthly income. However, it's so much higher at age 70. That's often really important to think about when you have a spouse that earned less and is much younger than you. Because if you're married, when one person dies, no matter who it is, the smaller check goes away and the survivor keeps the bigger check. So oftentimes, even if a person is not healthy and going to live, you know, not into their 80s, but their spouse will and their spouse is the lower income worker, then it's still important for them to delay Social Security at age 70. But it's not. Always. Now, the typical situation where, where that is the case, so you got a higher income earner, um, the person has other money to live off of, they retire at 65, they've got other money to live off of between age 65 and 70 while they're waiting to delay Social Security. They do a very detailed financial plan, and it's clear that they're going to have money left over and real estate left over for their kids. And in that financial plan, it's very detailed cash flow planning where you can clearly see starting at age 73, which is the new age for required minimum distributions. That's the age where you have to pull money out of your IRAs, 401ks, 403bs. They can see, you can see in the financial plan, there's a, another column that shows your effective tax brackets. And in the financial plan, you can clearly see that because of required minimum distributions at 73, taxes start to increase. So in a typical situation, we're really concentrating on IRA to Roth conversions from retirement age through age 70 when Social Security kicks in. And the reason why we're doing that is because you have more control over your tax brackets. You can often take money and move small amounts from your IRA to your Roth, pay taxes at a lower rate than you're going to be at after age 73 when your required minimum distributions kick in and start creating a tax-free account for the rest of your life. And that Roth IRA grows tax-free forever. And as long as um, you name the beneficiaries correctly, your kids can roll it into an inherited Roth IRA and defer, you know, have zero taxes for another 10 years on top of that. That's a lot of tax-free growth for the family. Now, we still do, a in that situation, uh, some IRA to Roth conversions from, IRA, from age 70 when Social Security kicks in to age 73, but a little bit less each year because as Social Security kicks in, 
for most people in that situation, 85% of Social Security is taxable income. Okay? So that's a very typical situation. When people have enough money to retire, they're going to live a little, they're going to leave a little money to their kids. They can clearly see they're at a higher tax bracket at age 73 when required minimum distributions kick in. And so you're, you're kind of doing this staggered planning, right? Let me give you an alternate scenario where waiting till age 70 does not make sense here. Let's say, you know, a couple, a person or a couple is, is the, just enough money to retire at age 65. In fact, when you do the long-term projection where you're projecting, you know, a, a conservative rate of return, sub 6%, and um, you, you look in the financial plan and they have just barely enough assets to make it through age about 95. And after that point, especially if they need some sort of nursing home care, they're selling their home. They're, they're having to find other sources of liquidity. They're running out of liquid assets. And in that type of a scenario, they might look at taking Social Security right at age 67. Because from, if, if they have you know ca- some other cash to live off of, from 67 to 70, if they have no other income sources from pensions and rental properties and things like that, that's the only point in time from 67 to really 73 when the required minimum distributions kick in that they can actually have tax-free income from Social Security. The way that, that Social Security is calculated in terms of whether or not it is taxable, you take one half of your Social Security plus all your other income sources, um, including your tax-free bond income, and if for a married couple, it's it's if that number's uh, over around forty two thousand or so, eighty five percent of your Social Security is taxable. So if your pensions, your requirement of distributions, things like that aren't kicking in yet, there could be a point in time from age your full retirement age of sixty seven all the way up to potentially age seventy three until requirement minimum distributions kick in that you could have several years of Social Security income that is tax free. And then it becomes taxable after your required minimum distributions kick in. Hope that makes sense. So it's not, you know, Jay, to answer your question, in most cases, it pays to wait till age 70 to take Social Security, but not in all cases. People need a detailed financial plan, conservative growth rate, sub 6% to see how long their money is going to last. Financial plan needs to clearly show required minimum distributions, how those are calculated, as well as future tax brackets on a column that you can clearly see. Our planners use social security analysis software. Um, We look at age differences, wage differences, and the, the smaller check goes away when one person passes away. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Now back to New Focus on Wealth on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. I've done full shows about real estate versus stocks, and... I've mentioned, you can look at some of the past podcasts. I've mentioned that the only way that real estate keeps up or outperforms stocks over a long period of time is with leverage, right? Where you can take a 30% down payment, get a, a, a great loan on a property, get a renter in there and somebody else buys the asset for you by paying rent, which you use to pay off the mortgage over time. That's leverage, right? You're, you're buying a million dollar asset with a $300,000 down payment. 
and you get a little bit of positive cash flow along the way. But if you look at real estate in terms of, okay, I've got a half a million dollars I'm going to put in the S&P 500 20 years ago and a half a million dollars that I'm going to put on a rental property 20 years ago. The half a million dollars that you put in the S&P 500 20 years ago is up 580%. All right. Now, if you look at that rental property that you bought for half a million dollars and you, you know, took your positive cash flow and invested that. But, but every time that you had a large expense, a tax payment, things like that, that you, you ended up adding money to the S and P 500, it, it looks even worse. Like you're really looking at outperformance in terms of stocks versus real estate. So there, there's plenty of proof and articles out there that over time, you know, the real estate works because of the leverage. Okay. But now you get later in life and we're running into financial plans all the time where people have done really well on real estate and rental properties. Um, they go into retirement, but there's a point where their liquid assets start to draw down and they realize, okay, I'm going to have to sell one of my rental properties at some point. I'm also getting older and I, I'm just tired of managing these things. Um, you know, I had a, another story from a client that has several rental properties between California and, and the state of Washington and they ended up dealing with a professional squatter in their apartment in Orange County for something like eight or nine months with, with no income. And you get those situations sometimes. Um, I've told you other stories where, you know, guys rented the property out and uh, animals kind of ran wild in this home. And they literally opened up a uh, door to the main bathroom and a parrot flew out. And the parrot had pulled tile off the bathroom walls and was nesting in there. It was just a total mess. Um, so there's, you know, for every person that has several rental properties, there's a lot of interesting stories out there. Right. And I'm not saying you cannot build wealth in real estate. You can build a ton of wealth, but typically it's leverage. It's, um, you know, realizing that every five to 10 years, you're doing a 1031 exchange into some better property and continuing to build, build, build. Right. It's, it's some work. The thing that that I'm you know seeing in retirement that's happening a lot more is as people have bought rental properties and eventually the loan is paid off, so they're sitting there looking at this property and realizing that you know prices have kind of topped and income is is kind of low, especially if Bay Area. I'm like, okay, here's a typical scenario: I've got a million dollar property. I'm rent, it's it's a million dollars on Zillow, or I could sell it for a million dollars in the Bay Area. Um, I'm getting sixty grand a year of rent. Sounds good, right? It's paid off though. So your 60 grand a year in rent is reduced by at least 10,000 in property taxes. If you bought it a long time ago and you got that prop 13 protection, you're paying 6,000 a year on average in maintenance, you know, typically uh, at, a, at a minimum, usually it's, you know, more than that, like say 1% on property because every once in a while you got to put a new roof on it. Every time you get a new renter, you got to update those, you know, a paint and carpet and things like that. You might have a property manager for about six grand a year. So a lot of times I'm seeing people that have this property that's paid off and they're getting less than 3.8% net income. Now there's some tax efficiency there because you still might have a little bit of depreciation left over. But look, bank accounts are now earning over 4%, right? That's not that attractive anymore. And people as they age are like, I don't want to do this property management thing. And even if they have a property manager, there's still certain things they got to deal with. And there's risk involved, right? The problem is, is if you sell a rental property, 
you have a capital gain situation, which is the difference between what you paid for the property and what it's worth now. And then the depreciation that you took over all those years. So when you buy a property, the structure on the land, the structure you get to depreciate over 27 and a half years. And that reduces your taxable income as you own that rental property. But when you sell it, you have to recapture that depreciation and pay 25% taxes on it. That's painful. So a lot of people are like, oh, man, I got this property. The net income isn't that great anymore. But gosh, the pain of selling it and paying taxes is worse. So if I die with that property, you know, at least my heirs get a step up in basis and they can turn around and sell it tax free. But what people don't realize, I think, a lot of times is that you can 1031 exchange it into something passive. 1031 exchange is a tax code. So just like a 1035 exchange allows you to take a garbage, non-qualified annuity and roll it into a, you know, potentially something better without paying taxes, a 1031 exchange does the same thing with real estate used in trader business. So if you got a rental property and you don't want to own it anymore, you can do a 1031 exchange into something passive. And typically these are Delaware series trusts. There's several companies that are out there that are doing it. There's only, you know, a handful that we trust that do these things where you take your rental property, you can do a 1031 exchange into a more diversified portfolio of real estate, a mix of say student housing, a, a building owned by Amazon, apartment building, self-storage. And because of the DSC structure, the Delaware series stress structure, you just kick, you don't have to do anything. You kick back and you take the income, right? Now there's also options of 1031 exchange and other rental properties, wherever you want. Here's the rules. If you go to put the property up for sale, you have to, everybody knows, needs to know from the beginning, the real estate agent, everybody that this, you intend to do a 1031 exchange because when the property sells, the cash has to go to a qualified intermediary, right? It sits in the qualified intermediary. It's, it's in an escrow account there. And once you sell your rental property, you have 45 days, the clock starts ticking. Or if you want to do a tax-free exchange into something else, you have 45 days to identify either three properties that you want to buy, or you can add up multiple addresses and split it up between multiple properties as long as the total number that you identify does not exceed 200% of the value that you're selling. So if you're selling a million-dollar rental property, you can do multiple addresses and, and kind of split it up as long as it doesn't exceed $2 million in value. So you got 45 days to identify properties, and then you've got 180 days from the date you sell to close on the new property. If you do that properly, then you can get out of one rental property and go into a better one, whether it's a different one that you manage on your own or one of these passive real estate deals, these DSTs, where you've got a larger company that's managing the properties. Now, there's some issues here. It gets a little bit complicated when you have debt on the property. So if you have, if you still owe money on a rental property, then if you don't receive cash back, but your liability goes down, then that will, that could be treated as income for you. So suppose you got a mortgage on that $1 million property, but your mortgage on the new property that you're buying in exchange, um, you know, is, is much lower. Let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars lower than that could be classified as what's called boot and somewhat taxable. So it does get a little bit complicated if there's debt involved. 
a lot of this has to do with people that have these paid off rental properties and they just want to get out of them. So what we're going to talk about is going into something more passive. Now, the DST Telaware Series trustees used to be ticks, tenants in common, but during 08, 09, you know, the t- problem with that was is that when they needed to refinance properties, everybody had to agree and some of them were just, just didn't work out. With the DST at Delaware Series Trust, you have a very trusted, well-known real estate investment company that's managing the property and they've got, they don't have to get everybody to sign off when they need to do something that's supposed to be done for the deal. So these DST offerings, you can get a portfolio that's very diversified. You can take one rental property, let's say that's stuck in the Bay Area, earning 3% net income and diversify it among student housing, a, a building leased by Amazon, a part, large apartment building, self-storage, and have the same or higher income. And because you've gone into a new deal, you have a much higher amount of depreciation and capital or return to capital. So oftentimes it's mostly tax-free income when you do these things. And the real estate company not only is, you know, here's the income, but they're they're creating or building or redoing or buying properties at a discount with the idea that they're going to sell them in five to seven years and you're going to 1031 exchange into something better. So they're trying to get a a much higher total return than just the income. All right. So there's some good issues there. Now, the drawback is that every five to seven years, these tend to these, whatever you 1031 exchange into and these DSTs, they tend to want to sell them for typically a gain again in five to seven years, the average deal that we look at is five to seven years long. And so you're going to have to make the decision again every five to seven years. The other options that are out there are very similar, but they use what's called a 721 exchange offering. This is something that's more for people that they want to make this decision once, they want to end up with a diversified real estate portfolio that has much more liquidity options as they move forward in life. Because a lot of financial plans that we run with people that are heavy in real estate, but they don't have a lot of liquid assets. We can clearly see in the financial plan as we move forward, as they spend more money because of inflation, eventually their liquid assets start to run down and they need to create liquidity out of real estate, but they don't want a massive tax hit when they do it. So coming back after the break, we'll talk about this 721 exchange offering that are out there as people go through life and they're like, Hey, I've built some great wealth with real estate, but it's time to simplify life a little bit. And, you know, especially if it's in the Bay area, maybe create a little bit higher, more tax efficient income as I move forward in my retirement plan. So take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you want to find me, just go to chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com. You can find out me. If you have questions about retirement, (laughs) This is New Focus on Wealth on AM 1220 KDOW. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. You just set up a meeting with me and one of our other certified financial planners to talk about your retirement plan as you get, you know, if you're close to retirement and retirement. Need some help with those distribution strategies. Shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. Just go to the website. So right now we're talking about real estate options as people say, okay, I've got these rental properties, a little tired of managing them especially if they're paid off and they're not getting a great net income anymore. What are my options to simplify life? So we talked about the DST option. Kind of another level above that is what's called a 721 exchange option. To first realize you know, what this is, first I got to make sure you understand what a REIT is. That's a real estate investment trust. All that is is a 
it's it's a company that's set up like a REIT. They're still publicly traded, right? If you look at if you want to look at a bunch of different REITs that are available on the stock exchange, you can look at the holdings of RWR. That's an ETF that owns a bunch of different REITs, real estate investment trusts inside of it, such as like Simon Property Group, right? Um, the You've got Prologis, you've got Avalon Bay, you've got Equity Residential, you got, uh, I mean, everything from hospital REITs to apartment buildings to data storage. There's a whole bunch of different types of REITs out there. When you own one REIT, um, you either get a concentrated one. There's other REITs like WPC Carry, for example, that has a different a whole bunch of different types of properties inside one REIT. There is there's very there's a lot of options here, but the idea is that it typically owns real estate. Um, REITs when they're set up, they are meant to pass ninety percent of their net income on to investors to qualify as a REIT. Um, the income can be t- very tax efficient because depreciation and and return of capital is passed on as you take your income out, so it's not all taxable. So that's what a REIT is. It's a stock, but they're just set up slightly differently in terms of structure. Um, And they're really meant to produce some decent amount of income. So you own this rental property, million bucks. If you sell it, you're going to get killed on taxes between capital gains and, and recapturing depreciation. And if you want to go into something passive... And just be one and done where you're not the DSTs that I mentioned before, every five to seven years, you're typically having to make the decision again. Do I want to go into another new deal or do I want to cash in and pay the taxes? But the 721 exchange is more of a kind of one and done deal where you 1031 exchange into a specific building, right? And that building, though, is already under contract essentially to be purchased by a diversified real estate investment trust. So what happens is you go into a specific building, you have a specific income for usually two years. And then after two years, the REIT, the often globally diversified with, you know, hundreds of different types of properties inside the REIT, the real estate investment trust, it buys that building. And then all of a sudden you go from your rental property, two years of income in a specific building to now you are part of this, globally diversified real estate investment trust. And what's nice about that is then you have typically a higher income source, you know, these ones we look at, you know, close to 6%, um, globally diversified, still being managed by a company that's trying to create not only income, but also profits over time. You're not having to make a decision every five to seven years to, to do another 1031 exchange. And um, you have more liquidity. You can start taking your basis out. You can start selling. If you want more than the income that's being produced, you can start selling shares on sometimes a monthly or a quarterly basis to create more liquidity. You can gift a few shares to family members. If you're trying to do some estate planning, it's a great asset to gift into certain types of trusts to reduce your taxable estate, such as GSTs, dynasty trusts, and things like that. So it actually creates other opportunities when it comes to estate planning as well. So again, when you, when you say, I've got this rental property, 
property that's used in trade or business or a commercial property, something that you've, you know, essentially been charging rent on. And your idea is that I want something more passive. I'm not getting a great net income, but I also don't want to sell it and pay a bunch of taxes. There's a couple of different passive options. You either 1031 exchange into a DST, into a couple, you know, properties. So you take one rental property and you're, you're into, like I said before, a mix of student housing, a building that's leased out to Amazon for many years, apartment building, self-storage, um, and realizing that, okay, every five to seven years, whatever deal you go into, you're going to, they're, they're going to want to sell it and you're going to have to decide whether or not you 1031 exchange into the next deal. Right. So you can take one rental property, split it between several different DSTs. And as those come up, you have that decision. Do I to keep rolling or do I cash in and pay taxes on some of what used to be my single rental property? Or there's the 721 exchange option to avoid taxes and to create higher income. So what are the drawbacks of these? Obviously a little lack of control, right? You go from being the owner, making all the decisions to now you're depending on a company to make all these decisions for you. So you got to look at the history of this company. How did they make it through, for example, the great recession of 08, 09? So, and, and then, you know, liquidity, that's the other issue that you got to think about. And often, if you go do a 1031 exchange into these various properties, a lot of them aren't going to be in your state. You might end up having to file additional state tax returns if the property is in Texas or Florida or some other state, right? So that's something that you have to go into eyes wide open. And when you do it, you have to make sure that the CPA that you're using knows how to report these things because it's it's uh, it's not super easy. Once you're in these deals, it's pretty easy to get a, you know the ones that we look at you know off give a 1099 that has all your income depreciation return to capital. Uh, but the additional state filing tax returns are definitely an issue. So the point of that all is is you know not necessarily a conversation today of stocks versus real estate. I love them both. Well, I like my real estate to be leveraged, but it's how do you exit over time as you age and you don't want to have the property management issues and the risk issues anymore, or it's just a liquidity issue in your overall financial plan and your long-term cash flow. There are options out there. Just go to somebody that doesn't do commission-based work. Go to a fee-only certified financial planner. We got a bunch of them in EP Wealth. You can check it out. Just go to chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com. Have a great day. Please tell a friend about the show.
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.